Miss the show, no worries, on point, and on the podcast today, is there such a thing as COVID jails? It's starting to sound like it. We talked to a guy who arrived in Toronto off a plane. He had his negative COVID test, and now he's been sitting in a hotel room locked up for the last three days. And he had a negative test result. Why are they doing this? The Liberals designate the Proud Boys as a designated terror group. Do they qualify for that title? And if they're terrorists, does Antifa also get a designation? And kids are heading back to school because people are starting to realize the cost is outweighing the cure. Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. It's not often I talk about the competition on my show, but in this case, I'm going to because their loss really does hurt us all. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, February 3rd. And, you know, we know that COVID-19 is crushing a lot of us, not just in health, but certainly economically. And if you're in the private sector, then you know how devastating it has been. And certainly the devastation has a trickle effect. And when businesses aren't making money, then they have to cut. And one of those cuts is to things like advertising budgets. And for us in the media world, advertising is the very lifeline of newsrooms across this country. And it has dropped severely. I mean, none of us feel safe, certainly not on the private side. And over the last couple of days, we've learned that Bell's decided that the best way to save money is by gutting two of the oldest newsrooms in the country, station in Montreal and their main talk station here in Toronto. These are heritage stations. The originals, the the first in the business, and this is a really com, you know competitive business. But I absolutely take no pleasure in seeing my competition recklessly kneecapped. Not only because those let go have worked really really hard for very little, but as much as we compete, we build relationships over years while covering off stories. But these severely deep cuts really do speak to a bigger threat. That being the continued death of local news. And while there are plenty out there who will celebrate this as some kind of victory against the mainstream media, you shouldn't, because their demise is a direct threat to the health of this country and to our democracy. And those who know my background, then you know I've covered a lot of local news for almost two decades in television. And I didn't do, you know, cat up a tree stories, although there were a couple. I went into communities all over Ontario to bring attention to issues that would otherwise go ignored. I mean, I recall the day back uh, back in 2000 when my news director said, hey, can you take a quick drive to Walkerton? He said, I want you to check out this boil water advisory, see if it's something, you know, more serious. It was not the sexiest story. But there I trudged off three hours to farm country where I assumed there was a non-story, only to find it blow up into a national tragedy. And I was one of the first reporters on scene when that story broke. And it took just a few knocks on a few doors before I would call my boss and tell him hundreds of people are sick and people are now dying because of the town's water supply. Local news matters. And without the coverage of small cities and towns across Canada, then we are failing you. We're failing the needs of people and their communities because those stories won't get told. And those who deserve to be held to account won't be. It is the small local story that turns into a national headline you hear about nightly, and that often forces change. 
Retea Parsons comes to mind. She was this unknown girl from a small town in Nova Scotia. And had local media not looked into her suicide, we wouldn't have started a national conversation on cyberbullying. We wouldn't know about the you know cancerous money laundering and fentanyl ravaging and killing people across this country if not for the Sam Coopers in this business digging and the dogged determination getting those stories to air. That is all local news. And sadly, we have just allowed it to be decimated for years. And I guess the Bell accountants may see this move as common sense, but I think it's very, very short-sighted. Because what is the end goal? Are we just going to get rid of it all? Is that what we want? I am very thankful that my upper management, those who have to make these kinds of decisions, I'm so, I'm so grateful that they have newsroom experience. These are people who spent time in the trenches, who see the value of local news because they were a part of it. They reported it. So at least I know their decision-making is done knowing the consequences of losing local coverage. And those of us in the private broadcasters, we already work on a shoestring budget. We have very limited resources. And contrary to popular opinion, we do not get big government subsidies. We aren't like the bloated CBC that not only gets billions from taxpayers, but also takes billions in ad revenue, which they really have no business taking because that double dipping further hurts those of us in the private sector fighting for the sparse ad revenue. And if the Trudeau government cares about things like local news, you know, if they want to help media, well, don't give handouts. Just stop the CBC from double dipping. Force them to do what we do, which is work smarter, work harder, and stay within your budget. Leave the additional revenue for the private broadcasters to compete for. And if the CRTC cares about protecting local news, then there should be rules in place to protect it so that when big, rich communication companies buy up smaller media shops, they can't just slash and burn what they seem to see as disposable. I mean, if ever there was a time local news is needed, it is right now. Now so that we can keep the light shining on the many failures and tragedies COVID-19 has thrust into the open. So we can shine a light on you know, issues like mass deaths in long-term care, or your kids getting back to school, or those dropping the ball on things like PPE or vaccines. Right now, it's local media who will hold those to account, who are often unaccountable. And if there are no reporters left to do that, then we aren't just failing you. I think we're failing to protect the future of our country. So I take no pleasure watching a competitor fall. I think competition is good. It makes us sharper. It makes us hungrier. And it makes us more determined to serve you the very best information we can. So Bell didn't just cut local news. They cut off their nose to spite their face. You know, needless destruction to the country's oldest heritage stations that I am very saddened to see go, but... We here at Global News Radio will gladly, we will dutifully continue to fill your local news void that Bell doesn't seem to care about anymore. And there's a huge amount of news, huge amount of local news tonight, lots to go over tonight, and that's why we're here. Certainly parents can rejoice. I've got a bit of a bounce in my step today. The schools are going back. It is indeed going to be a staggered start, but by February 16th, we should have all the kids back in class. Sure, there will be some concern. There will be some risk, but I think without question, a lot of uh, parents, certainly, even those who favored shutdowns, see the benefit of doing this. So we'll go over that a little bit. Uh, we've got a busy show as well. We'll talk about the uh, Trudeau travel rules. Um, 
because we'll we'll hear probably more of this about COVID jails. And we're going to talk to a fella who ended up getting a negative, negative test in the United States so he could fly home to Toronto, only to find himself dragged away once he got to Pearson Airport and locked up in a hotel against his will. And I know she is pretty clueless, but I shaken my head on this one. How is it that the health minister hasn't a clue what's in those vaccine contracts? Because now we've learned their $4.6 billion has been spent on vaccines. Apparently, Patty Haidu doesn't know the details. What? Huh? What? I don't know. Nonetheless, I mean, you ask, can they really be this stupid? The answer is yes. Very busy show here tonight, so we'll talk about the back-to-school question. And um, there will be some parents, I think, who are a bit nervous about the variants and the caseloads. So we'll go through some of the protocols that are being put in place. And then next week, we'll learn about March break. Will it be a thing or not? What is the safer avenue? You keep the kids in or do you give them a break? It's a bit of a toss-up, so we'll do that. Got lots to get through. Stay with us here on Point. I am Alex Pearson. Great to have you along for the ride. Stay with us here on Global News Radio. And I know I'm not alone when I say parents are going to be relieved with today's news that schools are set to reopen in the next couple of weeks. And that's despite the fact that the widely accepted narrative for the last couple of months or the last year has been, you know, keep kids at home and not take any chances with COVID. But I think a lot of people are starting to finally see that there are far greater risks of keeping kids at home and long-term health risks with lifelong consequences than actually putting them back in school with proper uh, protection. Uh, and so this is the thinking behind the decision today. I want to bring Michelle Sorensen into the conversation. She's a clinical psychologist. Good to have you, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Is this the right step in your mind? Well, absolutely. I mean, here in Ottawa, we went back to school this week, uh, as did many communities. And I think that everyone needs this structure, right? The structure is huge psychologically, physically, uh, so that kids go get tested. So it's my opinion that it's a good move. And you've got, you've got a few kids too. Have you seen a marked I improvement do. with their, have you seen a marked uh, improvement in, in their, in their, um, in their mood? I can say personally that we've been quite lucky that we have four kids actually. So uh, twins in grade four and we have a daughter in grade seven and then a daughter in grade nine who's only had every second day the whole year because here in Ottawa they have the high school kids in two different cohorts Um, and we've been lucky that overall they've been okay but for sure it's it's not really healthy for any kids Um, and yeah when my nine-year-old said to me the other day after her first day she said mommy school's much better in real life (laughs) I said yeah I think you're right about that it uh it was good for them to go back what is the biggest concern at this point? I mean, we, we've been warned about this now for a while, that the longer we keep kids out of school, uh, you know, that we're starting to see some me- real mental health issues. Uh, eating disorders is something that apparently has gone up significantly. Uh, anxiety, depression. These are not the kinds of things that just go away because you put a kid back in school, though. That That's my concern. I think it's a real concern. I mean, I think that you know, some of it couldn't be helped, you know, with a worldwide pandemic, of course, we're going to have long term effects. But I think we just have to keep having these thoughtful conversations. It's been wonderful to see letters from doctors, people advocating for open discussion, um, to really look at the balance of different health issues. I mean, we've never in our society focused on just one health issue 
and then put the others to the side, right? We have to, and we also have to recognize that mental health and physical health are completely interconnected. So mm-hmm. if kids and parents and adults in general are more anxious, more depressed, having trauma, and there's going to be some trauma no matter what with the upheaval we've had in society. But I do believe there's certain things we can do to mitigate some of the effects, like the structure and the order of a school day, you know, helping some of our marginalized communities with taking off some of the pressure and small crowded housing, things like that. Yeah, we can help reduce some of the harm that uh, comes with all this. But for sure, I mean, both talking to clients who are parents, talking to friends and other people I know, as well as hearing from child psychologists and social workers and pediatric doctors speaking up. I mean, there are so many concerns for both adults and children, like increases in um, obsessional behaviors, you know, eating disorders, of course, for adults, addictions, sometimes kids being exposed to adults having increased addictive behaviors, whether it's playing video games all day, people who are out of work, just total escapism. Or, and of course, not everyone's doing this, but these behaviors do seem to be on the rise. And so, yeah, I'm worried about kids and adults. And so can you reverse any of that? I mean, I know for my own little guy, I mean, he's been extremely lonely. He has been, uh, he'll break down in tears. He hates COVID. He, ma- he makes sure that I know that he hates COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got all, every child, be it uh, from the youngest of ages up to high school, college, are all going to have their own unique experience. But how do you reverse some of this given um, they've been out for so long? There's been so little structure and they've missed out on a lot, be it whether it's proms, uh, you know, um, hanging out with friends at school, you know, in the younger classes, it's making friends and being around their peers. They've just missed out on a lot. Yes. So, I mean, that's such a great question to come back to. Let's not just talk about the problems, but let's talk about what we can do to make it better. So in terms of macro level, like policy, I mean, please, let's not end up in the situation we ended up in last summer where no one has the structure of camps, the childcare provided by, you know, camps, whether they're community run and marginalized communities or, you know, some of the, you know, ones that people pay for. Like, we have to do better this year when we look at those kinds of milestones and experiences for kids. But yeah, on a macro level, I've seen that some of the doctors are advocating for, like, let's have a child first policy now. Let's shift our focus So what can we put in place that kids start to get special occasions, some kind of milestones, kids who like to play sports can do those things again. Like this is essential to self-esteem and confidence. So absolutely. I think there's like policy decisions that, you know, you and I don't make, but as parents, we can all advocate for our elected officials to really start making those hard decisions and having hard discussions. And then I think that on a smaller scale, like in your household, in my household, there is positive coping we can work on. So first of all, you know, when you talked about your son expressing his grief, I mean, we want kids to express it and we should acknowledge it. We don't want to gloss it over, pretend it's no big deal. And parents shouldn't have to do that for themselves either. Like if you're sad that your child never got their grade six graduation or their grade 12 graduation, we have to grieve those losses and not pretend they're no big deal. Like they are a big deal. 
Yeah. And and will some of this damage show up later? I mean, the kids will go back eventually, I think, in the next hopefully couple of years, we'll catch them back up with uh, with their, their education, um, you know, schooling, because they've missed a lot. And so they are falling behind. Mm-hmm. But can there be, um, you know, a, a spinoff from this that we, we only see in later years? Oh, I think we'll be hearing and seeing the effects of this a long time. And, you know, not to sound dramatic, but my thought as a psychologist, when I hear the things adults remember from their childhood, you know, the disappointments, the trauma of when adults don't come through for them. This is why I say as parents, we don't want to gloss it over. We want to validate for our kids and then help them to focus on positive coping, helping them build, build skills, do things they're good at now so that they have those memories later, creating good family time. Um, but also as a society, we have to know that like kids later will become adults, that the last thing we want them to remember is a pandemic where their needs were at the bottom of the list. Right. Of course, we want to protect the vulnerable. We have spent a year all making sacrifices, most people, because we believe that it was of the utmost importance to protect long term care, to protect the hospitals. And now the vaccinations are rolling out for those communities first for that reason. But we I don't know. I personally don't want kids to remember that they, you know, like my three daughters dance. So they lost, you know, they were in dance right. classes all day, all year last year, and then they didn't get to do any of the fun stuff, the competitions. Well, it kind of had to be that way. But like if this goes on for another two years, you know, that, that we can't have group activities for kids or that we're, I mean, I think, yeah, how could kids not remember that and maybe feel some resentment when they're older and they think about it? We We need to focus on them. Yeah, certainly don't want to tell. I mean, I I try to tell my my child nothing in life is going to be fair and there's going to be tough times. Um, But at the same time, you know, I guess if we're feeling it as parents, there's no question. I think the the kids are are certainly going to have this memory with them for some time. But nonetheless, they're going back. I uh, I did hear someone share a touching story of. I don't remember where it was, some kind of art competition where they put out an appeal for it. And I guess that the art that was coming in from kids was so dark. And it was like a real sign of, oh, wow, a lot of us aren't even seeing how deep the hurt is. Maybe some kids, it's a bit more surface level than others if they had pre-existing anxiety. For sure, what you described, like an only child who doesn't get to see other children. I mean, that's a huge trauma. Um, But yeah, we have to give them a way to talk about it and focus on how to cope and how to make things better. And you're right, like life is about building resiliency. Hard things will happen. However, like, what can we do that's better? Like, can we create more positive moments for kids? Our teachers are trying so hard to do that. Many of them, like, they're so happy to be back in school so that they can be there for the kids. Um, and, yeah, we need, at all levels, government, healthcare. we need to really uh, figure out how we can protect the kids now. Yeah, it's a big project and lots of work moving forward. But, Michelle, I appreciate your insight into this. We'll have you on again. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Alex. That is Michelle Sorensen, clinical psychologist. Her kids have been back in in school uh, for about a week, and um, we could just throw a party now because ours are going back in uh, January 16th. That is the day we can rejoice. So let's take a deep breath.
When we come back, we'll get into round one of Counterpoint, brought to you by our very good friends over at Pizzaville, 416-736-3636, or pizzaville.ca. We'll get talking because of them. Thanks. That's next here on Point on Global News Radio. Joe Warmington writes in the Toronto Sun about a young man who is uh, just finished up his third full day in a lockdown in a hotel room that he wasn't allowed to leave. His name is uh, Steve Jusing, and on Saturday, he came into Pearson Airport, after a trip to Charlotte, North Carolina. But, of course, before he got on the plane, he took the required COVID test, got the negative, gets on board the plane, only to find when he gets off the plane, he's taken away and basically dragged against his will to this quarantine hotel where he was held against his will awaiting a negative test. And, of course, guards watching his or anyone's moves, making sure they don't leave their room. Steve Jusing is now joining me. Hi, good to have you, Steve. You're free. You're free. Yeah, yeah. I'm home now. Good to be home. I bet. I bet. Uh, I mean, put into, um, before we kind of dive in, like characterize what the last couple of days have been like for you. Um, not good, I would say. Uh, yeah, no, definitely not good. When you say not good, I mean, um, you know, can you describe, take us, you're on the plane, you get off the plane, what happens? Uh, okay, so yeah, I got off the plane, and usually you would just walk out of the airport, you know, just find your exit and leave, but there was a bunch of checkpoints to go through, security checkpoints, like going in at the beginning, so I'm going through those, and uh, you have to fill out a little kiosk thing, kind of like the ArriveCan app thing, uh, so mm-hmm. I fill that out, uh, print out a picture of you, and you take it to the next security checkpoint, and that's where the security guard asked me again for my COVID test, which was already checked four times in Charlotte. They called four different times to confirm that this was okay. The rapid test was what I got because, sorry, I'm jumping around here, but that was the only test I could get within 72 hours, which was what was needed. You needed to get a negative test within 72 hours of your flight. Uh, so that's what I got. That's what they said was okay four different times before I got on the plane, but it was not okay once I landed in Toronto. So he took me to this other area uh, where she told me that, yeah, this was not an accepted valid test and that I would have to go to the quarantine area for at least 72 hours uh, or I'd be arrested there. Okay, so you're not the first person that I've heard this happening to. There are a couple of cases in Calgary where people are getting off the plane. They got the test that they were supposed to get or thought they were. And somehow in the United States, they're allowing people to get on flights uh, destined for Toronto but or Canada. But when they get off the plane in Canada, they find that they've broken some rule that they didn't realize they broke. And so how is it that you could get on the plane and be okay, but when you get off the plane, you've done something wrong? Yeah, that was my... Uh biggest issue really was just like i mean it would have been way easier to just tell me not to get on the plane i would have just stayed where i was or because i mean i did check multiple websites i called a health line i can't remember the number at this moment but i was told multiple times that the only restriction i wasn't told i needed a pcr test i was just told that i would needed a negative test within 72 hours also the only way you can get like i said the negative test within 72 hours is with the rapid test because in america my girlfriend's cousin works for the um, DHEC, which is the Department of Health and Environmental Control, and even he can only get a PCR test back in five days. So there would be no way for you to meet the 72-hour requirement and be able to fly back. So then you're taken aside. Who takes you aside, and do they offer you a phone call? Do they allow you to talk to anyone? Do they give you any information? Like, do they, What do they do? Um, they didn't give too much information. Uh, the only thing I seen was, I mean, I didn't really care to ask, but they were wearing vests that said PHAC on the back, which mm-hmm. is Healthcare of Something Canada, I'm not sure. Public health, but, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so 
they were wearing identification and then yeah we got taken to the shuttle from there you were allowed to use your phone and stuff it's not they did take your passport though uh they wouldn't give me my passport back unless i got on the shuttle so that was a big point like i mean i probably would have just left but yeah they had my passport so we get the passports back get on the shuttle there was I'm not sure how many of us were on the shuttle, a lot, six, nine, I'm not sure. We get to the, it's all tented off in like these white tenty things. Everyone's in there, you know, full looking like hazmat guards. And uh, we get taken off the shuttle one by one and put in a room. That's it. And then what? Like, what do you do for the last three days? Um, I just hung up. You weren't allowed to take any pictures on the inside either. That was a big thing. They were very mad when I tried to take a couple pictures that I did take. I was told I was not allowed to take any more. But, um, yeah, I just hung out in the room for, yeah, those three days. I mean, they said you could have escorted um, walks in the perimeter for smoke. And so, yeah, that was the only thing was for a cigarette. Like, but mm-hmm. uh, calling any have someone bring you smokes or anything like that. And were you allowed to watch TV? Were you allowed to talk to anybody? Yeah, yeah. They had um, free internet. Uh, they had the TV. Um, they did bring us food. I mean, it wasn't from good, horrible, most of it. But, um, yeah, I just, they dropped it. That was one thing that was also weird. I don't know why that couldn't be Uber. Just, I mean, they could have just handed <laughs> the security guard and dropped it at the door just as easily as that food. So that was an issue. I don't and know so the, the the goal was that you get off the plane and I guess you have to wait for a negative test, um, which you ended yeah. up getting earlier this afternoon and, and you're able to come home. But there was an opportunity or a possibility that you might have to stay there a lot longer, no? Uh, yeah, but I wouldn't have stayed there. I would have been, if I tested positive for whatever reason on their test, I would have been taken somewhere else. I don't know where. They wouldn't tell me where. They just said a government quarantine center. When this happened to you, what like what went through your mind? Was it uh, like a hotel experience, a jail experience? I mean, have you ever experienced anything like this in this country? Uh, not in this country. I mean, it was fine enough. It was a hotel room, but it wasn't. I mean, you couldn't go out. You couldn't. I, you, you were just stuck there. So it was. I mean, on top of coming back from the end of the trip, and now people are being told they're going to have to pay for this. I I was lucky to be honest because I'm not going to have to pay for any of that. But people are being told that it's going to be on their bill so i couldn't imagine having to pay what they're saying to to do that it would be unbelievable i mean you're pretty casual about it you seem to be taking it in stride i don't think most would be though correct uh no and i wouldn't blame them yeah it was ridiculous it should not have happened i mean they should it would have been just as easy to tell me it wasn't accepted at when i was trying to get on the plane or for me to i mean I could have just, I don't really see, on like, I'm still at home now, and I've still got to finish my quarantine. Under the threat of three years in jail or a million dollars, that's what they told me for breaking quarantine, the charge would be. Uh, so I've still got to stay in quarantine for another 14 days with two negative tests, and I, it's just insane to me. If people, What were other people doing? Uh, I mean, some people were very, very upset, much more than me, saying that they didn't have babysitters or they would be losing their jobs and things like this. And they were taken on the shuttle with everybody else. They were told it was inconvenient and they would be arrested if they didn't comply. No ifs, ands, or buts, or choice about it? Uh, No, I was told, yeah, I had, yeah, they would arrest me or I could get on the shuttle. So what's your word of warning? I mean, there are others who are going to be caught in this. I mean, is, is it um, fair to, to call these kinds of things like a, a COVID jail or 
You know, is that what this is? I mean, there was a perimeter fence all the way around, even with, like, the privacy screening on it, so you couldn't take pictures of anything. Like I said, they got very mad when I took pictures. I don't know why. But, um, yeah, it definitely felt like a... I wouldn't say jail, but definitely like a detention center or something like, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there was fences all around, barbed wire along the back and security checkpoints, gates. There was people out there in the hallways to make sure you wouldn't leave your room. So it was definitely not a hotel experience. It was far from that. Gee, so now you're in quarantine and you'll wait out the rest of this. And uh, I guess you are that cautionary tale that... Um... This can happen, and I and I take it that there's really no way to push back at this, right? If you like, once you're taken in, you're taken in. Well, I would assume so. I mean, I, as bad as it sounds, I, I if you get arrested for refusing, I don't think you would actually have to pay for that, right? Be being arrested. I mean, that would come at no charge, I would think. But going to the quarantine center is apparently going to cost two or three thousand dollars for a three day stay. Uh, like I said, I got very lucky that I got in before that. I didn't sign anything to say that I had to pay anything. They didn't make me sign anything at any point. So I'm free of that. But apparently they're going to be making people pay for that in the future, which would be insane. I couldn't imagine trying to go through what I went through with a family. Like that would, I don't, I don't even know. Yeah, no kidding. Well, Steve, uh, cautionary tale. I appreciate you giving us some insight. Enjoy sleeping in your own bed tonight. Yeah, I will. Thank you for at least getting it out there. I hope people will just stay where you're at. Just, I mean, it won't be as inconvenient and as expensive as what you're going to face. No kidding. No cheese sandwiches. Uh, it's not worth it. <laughs> Steve, thank you for chatting with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No matter the ideological motivation of violent extremist groups, they are all hateful, intolerant, and as we have seen, they can be dangerous. Well, that is uh, Bill Blair speaking as he announces the Proud Boys are officially a terror organization in this country, and they join uh, the ranks of al-Qaeda and ISIS. And uh, the Proud Boys, of course, came under increased scrutiny after the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol building, and that's when uh, several Proud Boy members were seen among the mob of Trump supporters. This is actually a group that was uh, created by a guy named Gavin McInnes, who's a far-right media personality, but he is, in fact, Canadian. And the group's Canadian chapters uh, were pretty much disorganized and not particularly effective. Well, that's what they thought. But clearly this designation would suggest that that has changed in the last couple of years. Let us bring in Mubin Sheikh. He is a former security intelligence and counterterrorism operative, currently a professor of public safety at Seneca College. Good to have you, Mubin. Thanks for having me. I, You know, what is the difference um of the Proud Boys we heard about a couple of years ago, because they're not actually that old of a group than the the Proud Boys of today. Yeah, well, there was some uh, disagreement whether Proud Boys at large should be, you know, writ large should be included in this, because really Proud Boys Canada are more sure they're misogynist and and whatnot, but they're really not, you know, um, they're not as as violent as, let's say, uh, Proud Boys Canada First, which was a splinter group that broke off. And and became you know a little bit more radical. So so there is there is that argument, but uh, clearly because of what happened in the U.S., uh, it it really did you know make this decision for the government a lot easier. And so, do they have now chapters in the United States that would be more organized? Are they lesser in Canada, or are they just uh, support groups here in Canada? Well, they're they're all organized in in one way or another. I mean, to carry the brand Proud Boys, they are of course in touch with. Uh, members in the U.S. And then that goes, you know, the same for the other groups that were also added to the group. Remember the base, mm-hmm. Adam Waffen and Russian Imperial Movement, which a lot of people yeah. haven't heard about, but, you know, they're active, you know, transnationally, Ukraine, Syria, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple mm-hmm. of the guys, you know, were involved in a plot in Sweden. So, so there is an increasingly transnational aspect to this. And this is why the minister mentioned Five Eyes intelligence support. And that means America, Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And so that's telling you that, you know, there are like-minded groups, at least, uh, all over, all over the world. Yeah. And um, what does it mean moving forward? I mean, obviously, if they're designated a terror organization, there's more scrutiny to, I guess, fundraising, um, their their movements are tracked. But really, once they get the designation, and I think, you know, is it fair to put them in a group with, let's say, ISIS? Because I don't think most people would look at them as being as dangerous, albeit, um, you know, their views on neo-Nazism, white nationalism, those things, those are all things that are extremely dangerous. And once they take hold, and, and they seem to have done so in Canada, it can only get worse from, you know, there. Yeah, what they're doing is, the governments, that is, they're they're looking at body counts, number one, right? I mean, in the past few years, largely because, you know, we're not seeing the sensational attacks of, you know, the ISIS heydays in 2015, 16, and 17. You know, by 2018, they were really, you know, muted in what they were able to do overseas. Uh, but, you know, far-right groups are racking up the body count. I mean, they've, they've killed hundreds of people, over 200. And because the their killings are not as sensationalized, uh, it doesn't get the, you know, the same kind of media coverage. But, you know, they're, what, they, what they've done is they've put Proud Boys under this, umbrella of, you know, ideologically motivated violent extremism. And that includes, you know, groups across the spectrum, uh, whether they're jihadists or far right or whatever. And it does now, in fact, what it does, I mean, it's very real. Being designated now means, you know, they, the minister said there, there are active investigations. The security intelligence and police have been collecting information for months and years is what is what the minister says. So that actually tells you that They've been watching a lot of these groups for a long time. And so and so taking all that intelligence that that other partner countries are bringing in together makes it easier for them to put them now all under on that same list. And then where would Antifa fall in that category? Because they, too, do their own kind of destruction. They certainly in Portland um, have uh, for two years now been destroying and attacking, um, you know, buildings and taking large portions of the city. Um, They've had their own very violent uprisings. Would they be uh, not fitting under the terror uh, banner? So this is an interesting question. This is always asked, of course, of, of both Antifa and BLM. But the, yeah. the issue is that they would they do not neatly fall under ideologically motivated uh, violent extremism. Uh, in fact, you know, BLM is in a different category because we can say, well, there are more civil grievances. And there are. It's extremism, of course, to, you know, uh, burn down buildings and destroy property. These are criminal offenses. Uh, but it wouldn't fall under terrorism offenses because it lacks the ideological commitment. And most of all, I mean, th- even though, yes, they damage property and they and they, you know, commit this kind of mischief, they're not killing people. Right. And Antifa has like zero body counts attached to them. So I'll be I'll be I'll say that when they when they when they did take over um, parts of um, uh, Portland, there were shootings. And I don't know if they count that in the death count. Maybe it's a different situation in the United States. I don't think we have as strong or as big as an Antifa presidents here in Canada. And that might no. be the reason. But. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they there was also there's a more serious case of uh, the Antifa guy. There was the one guy who shot the Proud Boy and he killed yeah. him and the police, you know, try, I guess, went to arrest him and shot him dead. But but uh, but that's the comparison. The comparison is made because 
you know, they're, they're seen as different types of offenses, just like we should view these groups as different types of violent extremist groups. So, of course, I mean, ISIS is more murderous and, and butcherous, you know, than, than any, you know, neo-Nazi group here in, in North America. They're not committing sensational attacks, but they're still killing people. And so uh, because, of course, of what happened in, uh, in January, uh, you know, you're going to see a larger attention to this, even by the U.S. government even by the U.S. government. And so do you have any idea of how much resource they are going to put into it? It's one thing to announce it, but it's a whole other thing to have uh, intelligence actually act upon it. Do you get the sense that they're, um, you know, gearing up to, to move in and dismantle any of these things? Well, that, that remains to be seen because it gets tricky with intelligence operations because, you know, in order for you to map the network, uh, you know, you have to kind of let things play out for a while So, uh, you know, chances are really good. Like what this does is uh, it allows the RCMP to, you know, you know, uh, go ahead with criminal prosecution. So people could be charged from these things. But that's actually another question that that critics have pointed out that, uh, you know, have we had any real prosecutions in Canada over groups that have been designated on these lists? Right. Like you'll have, you know, we haven't really had any like true proper Al-Qaeda or or even ISIS uh, plots uh, here, right? So so it remains to be seen what the police do with this stuff, uh, if they end up charging people, if they end up closing bank accounts. But I'm very sure that they are, they are monitoring these groups right now as we speak. So it sends a message to them that, you know, while, you know, the recruiting that they were doing online, all this stuff, uh, fundraising, et cetera, uh, chances are really good that the police are on to you. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I guess the comparable would be Hell's Angels, where they've uh, had a few big cases that they've been able to prosecute. They've been able to seize things like clubhouses and uh, profits of right. crime, those kinds of things. Maybe that is the, the route that they will take. Well, interesting day, no question. I don't think it's the last we've heard of it. And uh, I appreciate your insight into this. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That is Mubin Sheikh joining us here. So there you go. That is the latest in this chapter. And I don't care if it's left or right, if it's uh, violent, if it's, um, you know, promoting neo-Nazism, white supremacy, I don't care. Get rid of it. We don't need it in this country. You, of course, can join us live 630 sharp Monday through Friday. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.